welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by China analyst and author Mark O'Neill as we take a look at the life of doctor, lawyer and statesman Hawkeye, who was instrumental in the Hong Kong community just over 100 years ago. Part of Hawkeye's education was in England, where he also met his future wife. As Mark will be explaining, Hawkeye was huge here for everything he did, including being three times a legislator. He was also a major driving force behind the University of Hong Kong being built. Later in the programme, it's a bit of nostalgia, with former programme regular, the late Dr Dan Waters, telling me about his 1920s childhood in Norfolk. But first, let's take a look at the life of Sir Hawkeye with Mark O'Neill. So Hawkeye was one of the most important Hong Kong Chinese in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Hong Kong. He made enormous contributions to Hong Kong, especially in the fields of medicine and education. And there are many firsts in his life. So he was born in March 1859, and he was the son of a Protestant minister who was also a landlord and a merchant. That's a very early Protestant minister on the Chinese side. Very early, yes. So he went to Central School, which was the, the elite school for Chinese in Hong Kong. And when he was 14, his father sent him to a boarding school in Margate called the Palmer House School in Margate. I, I think it's impossible for us to imagine what it would have been like for a 14-year-old Chinese to arrive in this boarding school I'd be very surprised if there were any foreigners there at all, possibly from colonies. There might possibly be Indian, something like that. But there he is at uh, Palmer House School in Margate. Well, that's, that's so random. I mean, was that, do you think, through his father's Protestant connections? Yes, and his father believed, well, like Hong Kong parents since then, that if your child is educated abroad, they will have language, social skills, connections, which will enable them to do much better in life than if they study here. So then Hawkeye goes to Aberdeen University and studies medicine. So in Scotland? Yes. So Aberdeen is extremely cold. Uh, winter is very severe. So there is our young Hong Kong man, used to his you know, hot, hot summers. There he is studying medicine in, in Aberdeen University. And he becomes the first Chinese to qualify as a physician. Now, if that's not enough, he then studies law. So he goes to Lincoln's Inn in London and he studies law. So he ends up with qualifications in both medicine and law, which is really extraordinary for a young Chinese at that time. Very, very intelligent man. Extremely attention. And then he's going to beat us again because in December 1881 he marries a British lady called Alice Walkden. And as far as we can learn, this is the first marriage between a British person and a Hong Kong person. I, I don't want to say absolutely definitively because maybe there are some seamen or, you know, some less official kind of marriages, but this is the first official registered marriage that we know of between a Chinese and um, a British. And who was Alice Walkden? She was the daughter of a man of Blackheath. I'm sorry, I don't know who he was, but I imagine she was from what we call respectable society because with his degrees and with his father being a minister, yeah, I imagine it was an introduction and they met through family connections. I don't think he met her at a, at a bar, no, I don't think so. 
So that's 1881. So 1882, they come back to Hong Kong, and he's armed with his new medical knowledge. So he opens a medical practice in Hong Kong. The Chinese come to seek treatment, but they won't pay for it. They'll pay a Chinese doctor, Chinese traditional medicine doctor they'll pay, but they won't pay for a Western medical knowledge. So he can no longer work as a doctor then because he can't make a living out of it. So instead of this, he starts to become a barrister. And also he invests in real estate and in local businesses. So 1884, that's after three years of marriage, his wife sadly dies of typhoid fever. They have a little daughter. The daughter is taken back by Alice's family to the UK, but she dies young. So after this, he marries a Chinese lady called Lai Yuk Hing, and they have 17 children. 17, yes, I was reading that. It was sort of like 10 sons and seven daughters or the other way around, but it's extraordinary, 17 children. Was that normal? Yeah, well, for the rich, it was normal because they would have a large house, they would have servants, they would have an extended family, grandparents, aunts and uncles. Too. Yeah, but that's one wife. Well, for Madame Ho, we cannot imagine it. I mean, that means she was, she was pregnant for, what, nearly 20 years. Mr. Hawkeye has a very strong sense of mission, which is to bring to Hong Kong the things that he has learnt in the UK. So his principal contribution is in the medical field. So he sets up the Alice Memorial Hospital, which is named after his wife. So he founds the Alice Memorial Hospital, and this hospital exists today. It's in Taipo. Its name is the Alice Moore Miu Ling Hospital, and it combines the names of his wife and the name of his sister. So this was a very important hospital, and again, it's to tell Chinese, Western medicine's good for you. I am a Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese. I've been to the UK. I've studied medicine. I found it very invaluable. Here is the hospital to treat you. So this is a very important institution for Chinese. And then he sets up the College of Medicine for Chinese, which is the first place where Chinese people can study Western medicine in Hong Kong. I mean, if, if their parents are very wealthy, they can go and study in England or in the United States. But this is one for them to study here. And of course, the first student is Dr. Sun Yat-sen, and he was a student of Hawkeye who taught him physiology and medical jurisprudence. Yeah, I mean, Hawkeye, is, he's really got a lot of skills. He also becomes quite a, a, quite a big landowner, doesn't he? Well, he's, he's active on all fronts. So he has th three terms in LegCo, and he obviously uh, relishes this job. He relishes being a public official, speaking about public policy. He's quite at home with all these colonial officials who are in LegCo. He's a Justice of the Peace for 25 years. He's on the Sanitary Board for 10 years. And he's also a committee member of Polongok and the Tonghua Hospitals. So he's very active in charity and in medicine. And as you also say, he's also active in real estate. So I don't know how he finds the time to do all these, but this is, this is what he does. Now, but somewhat controversially, I mean, considering that a lot of his life and work is to do with sanitation and, and public health, in the 1880s, there's a, a law or a rule in LegCo that he actually votes against, which I found quite surprising. Yes, well, the sanitary conditions in many Chinese residential areas are terrible. 
and a British medical inspector came and he, he prepared a report and the report said that these conditions were uh, ideal for spreading epidemic diseases. Well, I mean, people slept with sort of pigs under the bed almost, wasn't it? Yes, and there was no, there was no inside the toilets. Uh, toilets were outside. There was lack of ventilation. You had to demolish these residences. You had to rebuild them to make it a minimum of hygiene. This was the recommendation of the, this British medical inspector. But the, the British governors were reluctant to implement this because they didn't really understand it. They didn't go to these places very often. And as you say, Mr. Hawkow and the other Chinese landlords, they opposed it because they earned a very high income from having large numbers of people living in these small areas. And if you demolish this and then rebuild, this will, of course, affect their income. So I regard this decision by Mr. Hawkeye as rather a stain on his record. He opposed this, this decision. But when the plague happened and there were more than 8,000 people died of the plague over a seven-year period, this was so serious that the reforms were carried out, these buildings were demolished and rebuilt. So it did happen. But yes, that, that's not good for him considering all the good things he did. This was a stain on his record, I would say. So he has three terms, as you say, in LegCo. He's a big advocate, apart from that decision. He's a big advocate for health and helps train others in both medicine and also in the law. So as you say, he's, he's sort of really quite, a, quite knowledgeable, or he's very knowledgeable in a whole lot of different areas. And of course, he's a bridge because he's an early Chinese professional and uh, expert in several things who's, who's furthering Hong Kong. Yes, and he was also very aggressive in establishing the university. There was a plan to build a university here, but the British government and the Hong Kong government were not willing to fund it. So the funding had to come from local sources. So to some extent that would be from expatriate companies here, but most of the funding came from Chinese sources. So here, Hawkeye has a very important role. I mean, he dies in uh, 1912, so yeah, he doesn't see the project completed and you know, he doesn't see the airport either, but he's remembered in the name, Kaitech. But his businesses are not doing well, so when he dies, he doesn't leave a will and his family is destitute. Wow. So actually, it's quite a tragic end. I didn't realize that. And perhaps you can say it's because he devoted so much of his time and energy to these public projects, not to his own business projects, that his business failed. So we've talked about, you know, Hawkeye as a, as a businessman, um, and, and not a very successful one, tragically, for his family. But as you say, it appears that he was busy with many other aspects of his life. He also would fund other projects as well. So perhaps that's also where the money went. But, you know, tell me about his political outlook. Well, he was a very strong supporter of Hong Kong. He thought Hong Kong was a model for the whole of China and that China should adopt many of the business practices and the, the institutions of Hong Kong. Now, on the question of the emperor, his view was that China should follow Britain or Japan, where you have an emperor or king and queen, but they are a figurehead and that underneath them you have a parliamentary system, you have a capitalist system, and people have certain basic rights. 
And he said that China should adopt this. This was necessary for China to, to change. The most conservative people wanted to keep the Qing dynasty and its system completely as it was. And the extreme reformists, like Dr. Sun Yat-sen, wanted a revolution and to overthrow the Qing dynasty by violence. So within that, there were a very wide range of views. So what we call the constitutional monarchists were an important group who believed that revolution was too extreme and we should keep the emperor, but we should import a lot of the practices from abroad to make China modernize and to run it better. So Hawkeye would be close to Sun Yat-sen. He supported him. He paid for his newspaper, but he did disagree with him on this point about whether the emperor should be kept. Interesting to hear that, actually, that there were these different views and, as you say, that, that uh, trying to look for a workable option where the, so the emperor would be then as Queen Elizabeth II in, in Britain. Well, and you, may, you might say that history has proved Hawkeye's view to be correct because, as we know, China did have a revolution, the dynasty was overthrown, but it did not produce a stable system of government afterwards because revolutions are too drastic. They change too much. And it took China 15, 16 years until it had a stable, unified government. If only the Qing dynasty had reformed itself more, perhaps they could have kept the imperial system. If they'd made reforms by themselves to take account of the changes needed, they could have perhaps kept the emperor. Did you think that uh, Hawkeye was actually... It's pretty moderate in his views then? Yes, and I think if we look at his life, he was someone who, who, who served his people. I mean, he brought to the people of Hong Kong all these medical reforms, these education reforms, these sanitary reforms. So he was someone who really did a lot for his own people. So I think we have to give him a lot of credit for that and someone who tried to improve the life of the people here. He was not engaged in the mainland. I mean, he didn't go to Beijing or he didn't work for the Qing government. His activities were all here in Hong Kong. Mark O'Neill there, talking on the life of Sir Hawkeye. A bit of 1920s music there to set the scene. Former programme regular, the late Dr Dan Waters, talked to me on the programme on a number of heritage subjects over the years, about the 1960s, scaffolding, a number of governors, and, as we heard recently on Hong Kong Heritage, about being a soldier in North Africa and Italy during the Second World War. Dan was born in 1920 and came to Hong Kong in 1954. He died in 2016. Here he talks about his childhood in the 1920s and 30s where he grew up in Norfolk in the flatter eastern part of England at a time when life was slower and far less mechanised. I'd like to say for a start that I am a Norfolk dumpling but you don't hear that expression used much in these days. A Norfolk dumpling? A Norfolk dumpling is a person who comes from Norfolk and, of course, it was something you ate years ago, a cuisine. And uh, 
I haven't had them for years. It's pretty basic diet. It's a pretty basic diet that farming people used to eat years ago. So very different from Hong Kong dumplings. Oh yes, quite quite different. What what were they like? Pretty plain, uh, suet, that sort of thing. I remember a schoolboy who I used to sometimes go to his home. His mother used to make them in the 1920s, and it, they were very often in soup. But uh, my mother used to look down on them a little bit, to be perfectly truthful. She wasn't too fond of them. So you were born when? <laughs> I was a war baby, in actual fact. I mean, uh, World War One when all the fathers came back from World War One, there was a baby boom, and there was a, several babies, many babies, born during that boom. I was one of those ba in the baby boom, and I was born in 1920, in other words. So I went right the way through my childhood, right the way through the 1920s. So you were born in Norfolk, which is in the east of England, and quite a quite a flat county. Yes, it's the third largest county. It is the county with the largest coastline. There are no hills much, very few hills, and no certainly no mountains. And that's why I used to do tree climbing. I'm quite proud of being from Norfolk. I suppose many people are proud of their counties. Now, when uh, I've interviewed you many times over the past years, you do have still, despite being in Hong Kong since 1954, you still have quite, in, in certain of your pronunciations, quite a bit of Norfolk brogue. Um, can you give me, apart from saying that you're <laughs> a Norfolk dumpling, can you actually give me a couple of examples of Norfolk language? Well, I mean, uh, there is a hansa. That is a, uh, do you know the, the bird, a very big bird, a heron, H-E-R-O-N. Uh, the the la name for that is a, is a hansa. And there are many, uh, there is the uh, goldfinch, is another bird, which is the King Harry. There are many names like that, for example, in bird life. And I was only dreaming, the, going off a little bit, I was only dreaming the other day, in our yard, we used to have our house, a detached house, there was a yard, a builder's yard, it was set up, the firm, by my great-grandfather in 1853, this builder's firm. And I worked in the builder's firm, I worked uh, there, I was the fourth generation, started by my great-grandfather. You were the fourth generation of this, this building firm that had been set up in 1853. So where you were growing up was actually a market town. Uh, yes. I was born in Norwich. Uh, Norwich is the county town, and there's a lovely cathedral there, Norwich Cathedral. It's certainly the best building in the whole of the county of Norfolk. And uh, I was born there at my grandmother's house. And then later, about three days later, mother took me to a place called Watton, which is a market town. And she took me back there to my 
uh, home. I also went to, as a boarder, to Thetford Grammar School. And Thetford Grammar School was on the border of Norfolk and Suffolk. I wasn't altogether happy as a boarder. So what age did you have to go to boarding school? I went there at nine, nine years old. That's very young. It is young. It's younger than most boys. Yet on the other hand, I've sometimes been at dinners in Hong Kong and I've spoken to uh, Chinese boys here who've been away to England to boarding school for several years and many of them quite enjoyed it. I looked at their face to see if they're serious and they are serious. Yes, they are. But you missed your family. Uh, yes, I did. I was, I, I was only a weekly boarder. But nevertheless, that was it. There's a lot to be said. Uh, old men have their dreams. There's no doubt about that. And I was dream, I often dream about my childhood. I was lucky. I had a happy childhood. Uh, my father and mother were very good. And, uh, I've heard, I remember a man telling me in Hong Kong, he said, I've got to go back to England to take my children because they miss, they will miss looking over a five-barred gate and watching a cow chewing the cud. So I'm going to take them back home. Yes, there's a lot of images that I have of your childhood. Uh, the quietness of it. I mean, at the time, 1920, when you were born and then going into the 1920s, how many motor cars would there have been? Well, I remember another thing. Uh, our telephone number, when we first had, was 3636. That was the telephone number. Uh, our building firm, I mean, when I was brought up, when I was born, uh, we had horses. We didn't have any motor transport. We had horses. So did you know how to ride a horse? Oh, yes. And most of my time, I would say, most of my time I spent with Arthur Payne and Jimmy Flint. Arthur Payne had his own small holding. And I used to go with him and he had uh, cows and a milk round and animals. Thoroughly enjoyed my years with uh, Arthur Payne. And when he died, he died 1928. He died and he died uh, sugar diabetes. And he left a few things to me. One of the thing that he, things that he left to me was a horse named Flossie uh, and it was, it was getting on in years a little bit but I lo we loved that uh, Olga and I my sister and I who died last year we loved that horse and eventually it had to be, to be put down but you were left a horse named Flossie and, and where you were you were in a small market town and it had a big tree a big tree, a walnut tree. Uh, I reckon about 80 feet high, something like that. And uh, I used to climb it. Uh, I was a great tree climber. <laughs> uh, mother was a little bit scared sometimes, but my father rather liked it. And I can remember, for example, the uh, Jubilee, King George V. 
and I can remember climbing up the old walnut tree and poking the Union Jack out of the top. <laughs> and uh, of course we had a car then, we got rid of the horses and uh, we, we, we drove around one Sunday afternoon and I can remember on that jubilee there were flags all over the place. And how old were you? Uh, I, I would have been uh, 16. Flags everywhere. It really was surprising. Um, so do you remember what your first car, family car, was? Uh, yes, it was a Ford. Did you have to wind up the engine at the front? Yes, I believe we cranked it. Yes, you cranked. You pushed it in and you turned it. And you had to be very careful of your wrist because it would kick, you know, it, it would kick. And so when you first got the car, was it just used for work or did you go on nice family outings? Uh, we used to have a men's outing every year. A men's outing? Yeah, for w our work workers. And uh, the lorry that we had, we had the first lorry in what? The first lorry in the town. And uh, we used to go to Yarmouth. That was where the men's outing was. And uh, we, the family, used to go in the car. Uh, the uh, outing, the men, that used to be, they used to be in a, uh, also a Ford as well. And when you went to Yarmouth, so you were on the coast. Um, so was it really a kind of seaside day out? That's right. And so tell me about the seaside in the 1920s in, in England. Well, it, it could be pretty cold, you know. <laughs> Norfolk, the Norfolk coast, it was on the east coast, and it really can be pretty cold. But could you get candy floss? Get what? Candy floss. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And uh, in those days, did, I mean, did people swim in the sea or was it too cold? No, no, they swam in the sea. But there's also the coast for Great Yarmouth goes for about two miles. It's a long uh, coast. I, yes, I would say two miles. And uh, it really can be cold. My father always used to say, because he had his office in the house, one of the front rooms, and he always used to say that... Uh, you when the wind is in the east, you can't get the place warm, my office warm. When the wind is in the east, it's neither fit for man nor beast. He used to say, "Yes." So it's quite a. So you had to be quite hardy to be in Norfolk. Yes, you had. Yes, I was very much born up, brought up in the horse age. Uh, I mean, after all. As I said, 36 was the telephone number. Everything was absolutely basic. And I was brought up uh, in the uh, horse age. But I had a very happy childhood. And another thing that I dreamt about the other night was the swallows and the house martins. Because every year about early September, they would all gather together and cluster on the telegraph wires outside our office uh, for, for our firm, our building firm. And then they would, uh, this was fairly early in the morning, about eight o'clock, something like that. And they would all chirp away and make a terrific noise. 
and then all of a sudden away they would go and they would fly to uh, North Africa, the warm climate, for to spend the winter. And then they would come back the following year. My thanks to the late Dan Waters talking there on his childhood in Norfolk in the east of England. That bit about Dan climbing an 80-foot oak tree in metric that's 27 metres, rather him than me. But aspects of his childhood were certainly idyllic. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>